0: Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, coming in solo today, and I've got some really interesting cases that have popped up in the news lately, and a few updates on cases that we have covered previously. We're going to start it off with updates for the Theranos Elizabeth Holmes case, but... The big news is that came out this week is Elizabeth Holmes gets more than 11 years for the Theranos scam. And this article is written by Michael Letique. And San Jose, California disgraced Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes was sentenced on Friday to more than 11 years in prison for duping investors in the failed startup that promised a revolutionize blood testing, but instead made her a symbol of Silicon Valley ambition that veered into deceit. The sentence imposed by U.S. District Judge Edward Davila was shorter than the 15-year penalty requested by federal prosecutors, but far tougher than the leniency her legal team sought for the mother of a year-old son and another child on the way. Holmes, 38, faced a maximum of 20 years in prison and her legal team requested no more than 18 months, preferably served in home confinement. This is a very heavy sentence, says Rachel Fissett, a defense lawyer who has also been involved in healthcare cases. Holmes was CEO through the company's turbulent 15-year history and was convicted in January in the scheme, which revolved around the company's claims to have developed a medical device that could detect a multitude of diseases cases and conditions with a few drops of blood. But the technology never worked and the claims were false. Theranos was dashed by misrepresentations, hubris, and just plain lies, the judge said. This case is so troubling on so many levels, Davila said. What was it that caused Miss Holmes to make the decision that she did? Was there a loss of moral compass? Holmes' meteoric rise landed her on the covers of business magazines once, and they hailed her as the next Steve Jobs. And her deception was persuasive enough to draw in a list of very sophisticated investors, including software magnate Larry Ellison, media mogul Rupert Murdoch, and the Walton family behind Walmart. She sobbed as she told the judge she accepted responsibility for her actions. I regret my failings with every cell of my body, Holmes said. She promised Avila she would devote the remainder of her life to trying to help others. Holmes' attorney, Kevin Downey, indicated she would appeal this sentence. Of course she will. It's 11 years, and she wasn't expecting to spend any time in jail, I think. But in any case, Holmes and her family left the courthouse by a side entrance and managed to evade reporters and photographers before handing down the sentence davila reflected on Silicon Valley's transition from an agricultural hub populated by farmers and ranchers to a crucible of innovation brimming with bright-eyed entrepreneurs dreaming of changing the world. Recalling the humble beginnings of technology pioneer Hewlett Packard in a small garage in Palo Alto, the same city where Theron else was based He spoke wistfully of honest, hard work. That, I would hope, will be the legacy and continuation of this valley, the judge said. Amanda Kramer, a former federal prosecutor who is now a defense attorney, described the sentence as the equivalent of neon flashing billboards offering a reminder the long-term consequences of fraud far outweigh any short-term gains. The sentencing in the same San Jose courtroom where Holmes was convicted on four counts of investor fraud and conspiracy Marked another climactic moment in a saga that has been dissected in HBO documentary and an award-winning Hulu series. Her lawyers argued that Holmes was well-meaning in her entrepreneurship and is now a devoted mother. Their viewpoints were supported by more than 130 letters submitted by friends, family, and former colleagues which praised Holmes. The letters might have struck a different tone had the writer seen and heard all the evidence shown to the jury. Prosecution wanted Holmes to pay $804 million in restitution, an amount that covers most of the nearly $1 billion she raised from investors, but the judge left that question for a future hearing that has not been scheduled yet. While wooing these investors, Holmes leveraged a high-powered Theranos board that included former Defense Secretary James Mattis, who testified against her during the trial, and two former Secretaries of State, Henry Kissinger and late George Shultz, whose son Alexander submitted a statement blasting Holmes for concocting a scheme that played Shultz for the fool. Alexander Schultz made a brief appearance Friday to lambast her for terrorizing his son, Tyler, a former Theranos employee turned whistleblower who helped the Wall Street Journal expose the flaws in the company's blood testing technology. Before the first and a series of journal articles appeared in October 2015, Alexander Schultz and Holmes hired private investigators to follow Tyler. The surveillance made Tyler so fearful that Alexander said his son began sleeping in his bed with a knife. The judge gave Holmes more than five months of freedom before she must report to prison April 27th, a window of time that should enable her to give birth to her second child before she is incarcerated. She gave birth to a son shortly before her trial started last year. If Holmes' pregnancy had a role in determining her sentence, the decision could prove controversial. A 2019 study found more than 1,000 pregnant women entered federal or state prisons over a 12-month study period. 753 of them gave birth in custody. According to a 2016 survey by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, more than half of women entering federal prison 58% 58% reported being mothers of minor children. Kramer said it seemed clear that Davila did not allow the pregnancy to sway his judgment. His sentence was a lesson about justice being blind. Whether you're a woman, a mother, a powerful figure, you are still going to be treated equally under the law. Federal prosecutor Robert Leach described the Theranos scam as one of the most egregious white collar crimes ever committed in Silicon Valley. In a scathing 46-page memo, Leach urged the judge to send a message to curb the hubris and hyperbole unleashed by the tech boom of the last 30 years. Even though Holmes was acquitted on four counts of fraud and conspiracy tied to patients who took Theranos blood tests, Leach also asked the judge to factor in the health threats posed by Holmes' conduct. Evidence submitted during her trial showed the tests produced wildly unreliable results that could have steered patients toward the wrong treatments. Holmes' lawyer painted her as a selfless visionary who spent fourteen years trying to revolutionize healthcare. They asserted that Holmes never stopped trying to perfect the technology until Theranos collapsed in twenty eighteen. They also pointed out that Holmes never sold any of her Theranos' shares, a stake valued at about four point five billion in twenty fourteen. Where did all the money go? to build technology, Downey said. In court documents, Downey also asked Avila to consider the alleged sexual and emotional abuse Holmes suffered while she was involved romantically with Ramosh Sunny Balwani, who became a Theranos investor, top executive, and eventually an accomplice in her crimes. Bolwani 57 is scheduled to be sentenced December 7th after being convicted in a July trial on 12 counts of fraud and conspiracy. Wow, that's a doozy and I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens on her appeal but I suspect they will confirm that verdict of 11 years. I mean, they really are setting out to make an example of Elizabeth Holmes. But so the next update that we have for the day is on the Gabby Petito case and we did cover off on this case some months ago. But there's big news on this as well. Gabby Petito's family just won $3 million in a wrongful death suit against Brian Landry's estate. But they're not going to get anywhere near that number, say the experts. And Rebecca Cohen and Natalie Musamechi wrote this article. A Florida judge ruled in favor of Gabby Petito's family in their wrongful death lawsuit against Brian Landry's estate, awarding them $3 million. But they won't actually get anywhere near that number, according to experts, because Landry's estate totals less than $3 million. The family will be awarded whatever is left. Brian did not have $3 million. It's an arbitrary number that Petito family's lawyer, Pat Riley, said in a statement on behalf of the family. When asked whether Landry's estate has 3000000 to give, the Landry family attorney, Steve Bertolino, said, No, it does not. It's only about 20000 At the last court conference for this claim against Brian's estate, I indicated to Judge Carroll that I would work with Attorney Riley to find a resolution to the wrongful death claim to avoid the expense of a trial when the outcome of the money judgment was unavoidable. Bertolino said in a statement to Insider, "'Hopefully this brings some closure to this chapter of this tragedy, and I look forward to working with Pat Riley to resolve the litigation pending against Chris and Roberta.'" Petito's parents, Joe Petito and Nicole Schmidt, plan to donate whatever they get from the Landry Estate to the Gabby Petito Foundation, which they started to address domestic violence. The foundation will continue to address the needs of organizations that support local missing persons and to provide aid to organizations that assist victims of domestic violence situations. Schmidt filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Landry estate in May for damages not to exceed $30,000. The death of Gabrielle Venora Petito resulted from the intentional acts of Brian Landry. The complaint filed by Riley on behalf of Schmidt in Sarasota County said, as a direct and proximate consequence of Brian Landry's tortious conduct, Nicole Schmidt and Joseph Petita incurred funeral and burial expenses and have suffered a loss of care and comfort. And have suffered a loss of probably future companionship, society, and comfort, the complaint said. Riley told Forbes that the settlement is separate from a lawsuit Petito's parents filed against Landry's parents in March, in which they accused the Landry's parents of hindering the search for their daughter by refusing to reveal information about her whereabouts. In November, Petito's parents also filed a $50 million lawsuit accusing Utah police of being responsible for Petito's death saying an officer who responded to a call about Petito and Landry was biased against their daughter. Joseph Petito and Nicole Smith wished to turn their personal tragedy into a positive, Riley's statement said. It is their hope that Gabby's Foundation will bring these important issues into the forefront of the public eye to the benefit of all communities. I know that they spoke about a second lawsuit within that article, but this second article is Gabby Petito's parents score second legal victory against Brian Landry's family. And MLC wrote this article, but the legal hits just keep coming for Chris and Roberto Landry. Brian Landry's parents lost another legal request ahead of their trial with Gabby Petito's parents. According to local sources, Judge Hunter W. Carroll denied the Landry's motion to limit the scope of their depositions in the lawsuit filed by Joe Petito and Nicole Schmidt. He ruled that the motion which sought to restrict the depositions to the weeks after Gabby's death and prevent further embarrassment for Chris and Roberta was overly narrow. Judge Carroll also ruled their motion would preclude directly relevant evidence based on the allegations in the lawsuit that the Landrys were aware of Gabby's murder and did nothing. The court notes that there really has been no showing of any prior misconduct by the plaintiffs, the judge said during the hearing on Tuesday. We normally would not issue such an order without either some showing of something going on, other than the fact that there's a lot of media scrutiny. The blast previously reported on the Landry's motion, which was filed in October According to Fox News, attorneys for Chris and Roberta filed a motion asking the court to enforce a narrow line of questioning regarding the murder of Gabby. The 22-year-old was strangled to death by Brian in August 2021. The defense team asked Judge Carroll to limit questions to details from August 27th to September 19th in 2021. But Gabby's parents believe she was murdered on or around August 27th and her remains were discovered in a Wyoming national park on September 19th, 2021. We are just looking to confine the questioning to matters and the time frame relevant to the claim that has been filed," the Landry family attorney said on Friday, October 28th. The motion acknowledges that the Petito family and the public at large are searching for more answers in connection to the 22-year-old's death, however, it also urges that public interest is not enough to compel the Landrys to answer a broader range of questions. Following Judge Carroll's November 28th decision, Landry family attorneys released a statement. Obviously, we're disappointed that Judge Carroll didn't rule in our favor, but we have a great judge and he gives a lot of consideration to our arguments so I appreciate the thought he gave to our case, said Luca. The depositions will go forward, and I know that Mr. Riley and I will work together to make sure the questions that are asked are reasonable and fair. Pat Riley, the attorney for Schmidt and Petito, said their depositions most likely will not take place in December as originally planned. He will be seeking postponement to await the results from his FOIA request on evidence and testimony gathered by the FBI during their investigation into Gabby's disappearance. This is Gabby's parents' second pretrial victory in Sarasota Circuit Court. And we will give you more information on that one as it comes out. Then we have an update on the Delphi murders. This case has been moving forward at a pretty rapid speed, but I thought this was interesting that prosecutors now argue for secrecy as they search for additional suspects. And Ron Wilkins wrote this article. Prosecutors fueled speculation during Tuesday's hearing that Richard Allen was not alone when they alleged he killed Libby German and Abby Williams in early 2017. In his arguments against unsealing Allen's probable cause affidavit, Carroll County Prosecutor Nicholas McLeland cited the need to protect the investigation as well as to protect the names of witnesses who might testify against Allen. This is still a very ongoing investigation, McLeland said. Our goal is to find anybody else involved in this heinous crime. It is in the best interest of the public to find anybody else involved, they said. Allen's attorney, Bradley Rossi, argued in favor of releasing the documents. It's just conjecture, he said in a rebuttal to mcleland's argument. News outlets throughout the state, including Gannett, filed a brief Monday in favor of the document's release. Secrecy of judicial action can only breed ignorance and distrust of courts and suspicion concerning the competence and impartiality of judges, attorneys for the media wrote, citing a Nebraska case. At the conclusion of Tuesday's morning 40-minute-long hearing, Special Judge Fran Gohl said she will publish a decision on whether to make public the charging documents and affidavit after reviewing both sides of the arguments. Inside Carroll County Courtroom, reporters, sketch artists, and the public packed the courtroom as dozens of police officers stood watch over the crowd and Allen. The pre hearing courtroom chatter grew quiet as deputies led Allen into the courtroom from a back door. Alan shuffled his way to the defense table wearing a yellow jumpsuit, a black ballistic vest, and his hands awkwardly chained to his chest, left over right. It was his first appearance in public since his October 28th arrest and initial hearing. The chatter rose again after Alan sat down between his attorneys. McClellan said the public and media interest in the case rekindled after Alan's arrest and Alan's wife had to flee the community. The public has an absolute right to the information, but at what cost, McClellan said, they force his wife to abandon their house. Rozzi began his arguments by asserting that the documents should be unsealed. The motion to seal was improper because it lacked verification, a sworn oath under penalty of perjury, Rozzi said. Will the public interest be substantially served by limiting access, Rosie rhetorically asked. No, Richard Allen's point is it will not. Keeping the document secrecy only heightens the public's curiosity about the case. The public can see the truth of the facts to support this case, he argued, adding that the public can also assess through the documents how their tax dollars were spent in the nearly six-year investigation. As for McLeod's concern for the safety of the witness, Rozzi said, I haven't heard nor have I seen in the evidence presented any actionable threats. If the affidavit remains sealed, Rozzi said it would make the prosecutors and the defense attorney's jobs more difficult since they will have to vaguely allude to allegations during arguments in future hearings, including the scheduled February 17th hearing on whether Allen should be released on bond. In Indiana, most defendants are entitled to reasonable bail. That is high enough to ensure the defendant's appearance in court according to Indiana law. The only exceptions are murder and treason. Typically, most defendants charged with murder do not receive bond. However, bond may be granted if the case does not appear to be strong, according to Indiana law. Before Tuesday's hearing, prosecutors filed a motion for what amounts to a gag order asking the court to bar statements or comments outside of the courtroom for all involved attorneys, law enforcement officials, court personnel, the coroner, and family members. The motion cites the extensive media coverage as reasons for the proposed gag order. The media accounts concerning this case have contained an undue number of statements relating not only to the progress of the investigation, but conclusions of the investigation, some of which have been untrue. Allen's defense has not yet filed a rebuttal to the gag order motion, and Gull has not yet published an order for the motion, but we will keep you all posted. But it is very interesting indeed that they are looking for other individuals that might be involved in this case. Um, next case that we're going to chat about is Woman Sue's Craft claims Velveeta microwave mac and cheese takes longer to make than advertised. And Melissa Alonzo and Zoe. So Kiel wrote this article, the label on a cup of Velveeta's microwavable mac and cheese says the meal only takes about three and a half minutes to prepare. But a Florida woman says this is false and she is suing the manufacturer for $5 million. Amanda Ramirez has filed a proposed $5 million class action lawsuit against Kraft Heinz Foods Company, Alleging the food's producer, Velveeta Shells and Cheese, takes longer than the advertised time to prepare, court documents show. Attorneys for Ramirez filed the lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida. The lawsuit claims the packaging on the microwavable single serve. Cups of mac and cheese says it will be ready in three and a half minutes, and it is false and misleading. The product's instructions say to microwave the cup for three and a half minutes, but Ramirez's attorneys argue this number doesn't account for the other four steps required to prepare the pasta: removing the lid and the sauce pouch, adding water, microwaving, and stirring. According to court documents, the additional steps mean it's impossible for the mac and cheese to be ready in just three and a half minutes, according to the complaint. Kraft Heinz Foods Company dismissed the lawsuit as frivolous in a statement. We are aware of this frivolous lawsuit and will continue to strongly defend against the allegations in the complaint. A Kraft Heinz Foods Company spokesperson said, the lawsuit alleges that Kraft is unfairly profiting off false advertising on the cups, especially because consumers trust the well-known brand to be honest with them. Ramirez's lawyers argue that the company sells the product at a substantial price premium while using its misleading marketing of ready in three and a half minutes, which instantly catches the eye of of all reasonable consumers. Customers are paying more than they otherwise would have because of the three and a half minute claim the lawsuit alleges. Ramirez is like many consumers who seek to stretch their money as far as possible when buying groceries, the complaint states, but because of the time claim she paid more for the product than she would have paid and would not have purchased it or paid less had she known the truth. In addition to the five million in damages, the plaintiff also seeks punitive damages from the Kraft Heinz Foods Company and asked the company to be ordered to cease its deceptive advertising as well as to be made to engage in corrective advertising campaigns according to the court documents. I guess we'll wait to see how that one plays out. And next article, poisonous levels of marijuana in caterers food derail the wedding, Florida lawsuit says, and Julia Marnin wrote this article, a woman who attended a wedding in Florida is suing the event's caterer, accusing her of serving guests food infused with poisonous levels of marijuana. The event meant for celebrating two newlyweds turned to chaos as deputies arrived to find guests complaining of feeling high or stoned on the February 19th reception in Longwood, a city 15 miles north of Orlando, according to a report from the Seminole County Sheriff's Office. When authorities showed up, first responders were already treating several sick guests, and a few attendees were sent to a local hospital. Samples of food served at the event were sent to a lab for testing, the report shows, and the lab results revealed lasagna and bread testing positive for THC, an active ingredient in marijuana. Two months later, the Orlando-based wedding caterer, Jocelyn Bryant, and the bride were arrested, McClatchy News previously reported. Virginia Ann Taylor Soboda says she became immediately ill after unknowingly eating marijuana-laced food at the event and has filed a lawsuit against Bryant and her catering company, Jocelyn Southern Kitchen, Inc., according to a complaint filed in Seminole County. McClatchy News has contacted Bryant's company for comment. Taylor Svoboda's lawsuit urges she had no idea the wedding food contained cannabis, resulting in her suffering from marijuana poisoning, the complaint states. Food infused with marijuana can affect people differently compared with smoking the plant and can cause poisoning if too much is consumed, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Having too much may result in anxiety, paranoia, a fast heart rate, severe nausea, and more. However, it is highly unlikely for marijuana to be deadly. Uncomplicated marijuana intoxication rarely needs medical advice or treatment, according to Mount Sinai's health system in New York City. Taylor Svoboda is accusing Brian of negligence, and her lawsuit seeks more than $30,000 in damages. The wedding... Bryant knew or should have known that allowing the food served by Jocelyn's Southern Kitchen to be laced with marijuana was reasonably likely to cause injuries and damages to wedding guests, according to that lawsuit. Another woman at the wedding who became sick told authorities that she witnessed Bryant handling a green and fuzzy-looking substance with a scent of marijuana and placing it into food dishes, according to the report from the Seminole County Sheriff's Office. When the woman asked Bryant if the food contained marijuana, Bryant giggled and shook her head. Yes, the report states. The woman avoided eating most of the food at the wedding, but she eventually tried some bread and olive oil, according to the report. And shortly afterwards, she said she felt stoned. A few days after the event, she took a drug test, and the results showed she had marijuana in her system. Bryant was charged with violating the Florida's Anti-Campering Act, delivery of marijuana, and culpable negligence in April, according to the report from the Seminole County Sheriff's Office. The criminal case against Brian is ongoing, and she is due in court to face the charges against her in early January. Meanwhile, Taylor Sobota also wants to take Brian to court as her lawsuit demands a trial by jury. Wow. Crazy. And then this was an interesting case that I saw in the news as well, Melissa Highsmith, missing for 51 years, is found in Fort Worth. It's an early Christmas miracle for one Fort Worth family. A woman who disappeared over five decades ago was found in Fort Worth this week. Her family announced Sunday. Melissa Highsmith went missing when she was kidnapped by a babysitter at her parents' Fort Worth home in 1971. She was just 22 months old at the time of her disappearance, and over the next 51 years, Highsmith's family and police searched diligently for her, even following up on recent tips about possible sightings in North Carolina. In the end, Melissa was found living in Fort Worth under the name Melanie Walden. The Highsmith family said that a DNA test ended up being the key that led to Melissa. Our finding Melissa was purely because of DNA, not because of any police or FBI involvement, podcast involvement, or even our family's own private investigations or speculations, Sharon Highsmith wrote on Facebook. Melissa's parents met her for the first time in over five decades on Saturday. After 51 years of separation, Melissa and her family are making up for lost time and getting to know each other. It's good to see what I looked like as a baby, Melissa says, as she sits next to her parents, looking at photos of herself she's never seen before. Melissa, now 53, is back with her parents for the first time since she was kidnapped at just 22 months old. It's overwhelming, but at the same time, it's the most wonderful feeling in the world, Melissa says. Her mother is still processing it all. I just couldn't believe it. I never thought I'd see her again. Jeffrey Highsmith, her father, recalls the moment he heard his daughter had been found. They said, Dad, she's alive, and I started crying. After 51 years, it's so emotional. The family spent years searching for Melissa and her disappearance, has been on their minds for decades. But it wasn't until September of this year that a tip came in from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, reporting she had possibly been seen in Charleston, South Carolina. The tip ultimately did not pan out, but it put Melissa's story in the national spotlight and gave the family the strength to keep looking. Eventually, a DNA test from 23andMe connected Melissa's children with their family. When her family reached out to her on Facebook, Melissa thought it was a scam at first. My father texted me on Messenger and he told me, you know, I've been looking for my daughter for 51 years. This whole time, Melissa never knew her real family was searching for her. The person that raised me, I asked her, is there anything you need to tell me? And it was confirmed that she said she knew I was baby Melissa. So that just made it real, Melissa said. She then agreed to take a DNA test. And on Thanksgiving, she was reunited with her brother and parents. Appotenzel said it was the best day of her life. Her brother, Jeff Highsmith, said it was a dream come true. Melissa's sister, Victoria, was also overjoyed to see the sister she'd never known. I'm thankful to have her back, she said. Welcome back, Sissy. Welcome to the family. Melissa says she feels the love from a family she never knew but was never that far from. She spent most of her life in Fort Worth. My heart right now is just full and bursting with just so much emotion. I'm really, really happy. And she says she plans on changing her name back to Melissa. Melissa. So far, no information has been released about her kidnapper. And we'll keep you guys posted on that one as well. And one final article for the day that was in the news. Rihanna's lingerie line is sued for defrauding customers and will pay a $1 million fine. The Grio staff wrote this article, but... Savage X Fenty was accused of violating California law and automatically enrolling customers in a program with recurring charges. Savage X Fenty, the lingerie line owned by Barbadian pop artist Rihanna, will pay $1.2 million to settle a lawsuit that claimed your company defrauded customers. Rihanna debuted the lingerie line in 2018, offering a wide range of sizes and promoting body positivity. According to the East Bay Times, Lavender Lingerie LLC, doing business as Savage X Fenty was accused by the counties of Santa Clara, Santa Cruz, Los Angeles, and San Diego, plus the city of Santa Monica of violating California law and misleading customers by automatically enlisting them as a VIP in a program that had reoccurring credit card charges. Consumers have a right to know up front what they are paying for and how often, said the deputy district attorney, according to the Times. Businesses have a duty to be transparent about their automatic renewal charges. The lawsuit claimed the customers were fraudulently enrolled in an automatically recurring paid VIP membership when they made purchases on Savage X Fenty's website, resulting in credit card charges that would continue until the membership was canceled. The company's actions were likely to disease, members of the public and were performed with that intent, according to the complaint. Savage X Fenty failed to get customers' consent, clearly disclose the conditions of its auto renewal program, or offer a straightforward way to halt the charges. The lawsuit asserted customers were also misled into believing that shop credit earned through VIP memberships could be used at will, but in reality, customers could only apply it towards purchases that exceeded the credit's value. The Santa Clara District Attorney's Office said Savage X Venti cooperated with the county government's investigation and modified its website, automatic renewal alerts, store credit, and advertising methods. California state law requires internet businesses that promote to consumers to prominently disclose all automatic renewal costs. In July, new state legislation mandated that automatic subscriptions be simple to cancel and that online retailers make it apparent when free trial periods end. In addition to the $1 million fine, Savage X Fenty will pay $150,000 in restitution to former or present VIP members in California and a $50,000 state investigative fee as part of the settlement. On the brand's website, Rihanna Bose Savage X Fenty means making your own rules and expressing your mood, character, and style for you, not for someone else. Interesting stuff, indeed. And that wraps up the episode for the day. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We also post pictures of some of this stuff on our Instagram account. It's at the BFD podcast. If you want to check that out, please rate, review, and subscribe as well. It is super helpful for us. And we really, really appreciate that from our listeners. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!